Well, recently uh, we got a text in our little family thread that my nieces got hermit crabs. Um, They were excited because they've been wanting pets, and so they named these two new hermit crabs Hermit, uh, which is pretty creative, and Sally. Um, And so they've got this little box with their hermit crabs, and I woke up this morning to a text from their aunt um, that said, make sure you have extra shells in there for them in the event that they get bigger and need a new home. My friend's small hermit crab killed the bigger one and stole its shell. True story. <laughs> and in other words, uh, Hermit and Sally seem like friends until they need a new shell. And then it's going to be a death match. Hermit and Sally are friends until the other one gets in the way of the other's ambitions. And what apparently is true about crabs can also be true about a community, can't it? Everybody can seem like we like each other, we love each other, we're at peace, we like to be around one another until my ambition is interrupted by you. And in that moment, we can be tempted to kill, steal, and destroy as well, can't we? Now, you would never actually kill someone. I mean, hopefully. (laughs) Um, But certainly, you know what it's like to have this ambition in you. And yeah, this is, and they're a nice person, whatever. But when their desire intersects with mine, there's gonna be conflict. Communities can be like crabs. And the book of Philippians is about how a church can be a community that stays as one. The book of Philippians is about how a church can be a community that remains united even when there are all kinds of external factors that would cause concern and even when there starts to be internal factors that would cause us to disagree. How can you stay one? That's what the book of Philippians is about. The theme verse that we've been talking about is Philippians chapter one, verse 27. Paul says, just one thing, just one thing, As citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. We talked last week about what that means. Philippi was this Roman colony, which means the people Paul is writing to are Philippians. Uh, They're Philippians, yeah, that's not what I meant to say. Uh, They're Philippians, but they're Roman citizens. And as Roman citizens who live in this colony, they are responsible for upholding the values of Rome amongst the Greeks. And Paul speaks to them and says, hey, more than you are a Roman citizen upholding Caesar's values, you are a heavenly citizen who, is, who needs to uphold heaven's values. And so he encourages them to stand firm in that. Be one, be an ally with one another. You're on the same team. So compete together. And today, he tells us something that is absolutely critical if we are going to be able to do that. If a church is going to be able to 
to stay one, to not devour one another like a crab would do. If the church is going to do that, then we are going to have to humble ourselves. Today's passage is maybe the most important passage in the book. It's maybe one of the most beautiful passages in the Bible, definitely in the New Testament. Here's what Paul says, Philippians chapter two, verse three. If you're gonna be one, if you're gonna be united, if you're gonna think the same way, verse three, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. If you want to be this community that stays together as one, then you can do nothing that would put yourself above others, either in the way that you think about yourself in relation to others or in the way that you act in relation to others. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. Selfish ambition is a little word that refers to pursuing my own advancement, seeking to advance myself and fulfill myself, no matter the cost. And conceit refers to this idea of making a name for myself, having a position for myself, exalting myself above others. The word conceit here is literally the word that means Empty glory. It's seeking glory for myself. It's seeking to have power, position, privilege. And it's an empty glory because once you get it, it won't be enough. Once you get it, you won't be satisfied. And so Paul says, if you're gonna be one, then you've gotta do everything without those things. You've gotta do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. And there's something in all of us, the reason he has to say this is because there's something in all of us that naturally looks out for ourselves. Christians believe this is our fallen nature because of sin, that we are born with an inclination towards ourself, not towards other people. And selfish ambition and conceit can take many forms, can't it? When I was in college, just for one semester, I had, I had a roommate who would snore, and I hated him. Uh, not really, but kind of. Um, he, would just, he was like a freight train, and here's what I would do. When he would start snoring, first I would try to drown out the noise, you know, just earplugs or something. Then I would try what my brother taught me when I was a kid, the snap tactic. You just snap and you hope that that's enough to kind of cause the person to roll over and stop. Eventually I would start, we slept on bunk beds, I would start kind of shaking the bed. <laughs> then I would get down from the bunk bed and accidentally step on him on my way to the bathroom, you know. And then eventually you just start nailing the guy in the face with a pillow, right? <laughs> but here's what's so interesting about that. I was willing to disrupt his sleep so that I could sleep. Do you know what we call that? Selfish ambition and conceit. I had an agenda that I wanted to pursue, my sleep. He was getting in the way of that. 
And so I was willing to inconvenience him for the sake of my own convenience. I was willing to disrupt him so that I could be at rest. Selfish ambition and conceit. It can take ridiculous forms like that, or it can take much more serious forms, can't it? Selfish ambition and conceit can look like a person being willing to forsake another person for the sake of their own happiness. Maybe that's your story. You have a a dad or a mom who, for the sake of their own happiness, left you, left your mom. Maybe this is a person who's willing to be nice to someone so that I can get what I want from them. Selfish ambition and conceit. On the surface, they look like a great person. Maybe it's someone who's willing to be harsh with someone to make sure that they stay in their place. Maybe it's someone who's willing to control this person, either aggressively or passively, to make sure I can continue keeping you useful to me. It can take a lot of different forms, but selfish ambition and conceit always build walls in a relationship. They always put up a wall so that trust and unity become unthinkable. This is true in a marriage. This is true in a family. This is true in a friendship. This is true in a work environment. This is even true in the church. Selfish ambition and conceit. Looking out for my own agenda and thinking that I am better than another person builds a wall. And if that's true, then the opposite must also be true. Selfish ambition and conceit build walls, but humility builds a door. Humility makes it possible for people who are different to come together. People who would be separated because of all kinds of differences to come together. Humility builds a door. Look at what Paul says in the rest of verse three. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, consider others as more important than yourselves. Everybody's equal, but you're going to think about other people like they matter more. Verse four, everyone should look Look out, not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Humility is seeing yourself in the right relationship between God and other people. Humility is not thinking that I'm better than others. Humility is not thinking of myself more than I think about others. Humility is possible because of someone who is aware of how great God is. They're aware of their own flaws and failures, and they're aware that even my gifts and my successes are impacted by factors that I could not control. Even the good things I have in my life, I'm not solely responsible for. And because of this, because of how 
this person is able to see themselves in relation to God and others, then it changes their thoughts and their pursuits. In their thoughts, they don't think about other people like you're down there and I'm up here, or this group of people is like that, but my group of people is like this. It changes their thoughts and it changes their pursuits. I don't think of myself as better than others so that when I see people succeed, I don't have to be jealous and I don't have to be resentful, but I can celebrate them. And when I see someone fail, I don't have to harshly criticize or look down on them, but I can have compassion for them. And I don't have to automatically pursue my own ambitions at the expense of others. When I want to pursue my own ambitions, I can have the awareness to think, well, wait a minute. If I pursue this, it will affect someone else. And humility gives someone the awareness to be able to say, when I have this desire, maybe I should actually say no to it. Maybe I am not in such control of the world. Maybe the world is not so much about me that just because I want something means that I'm entitled to it. For the Christian community to be one, for us to live as allies for the gospel, like Paul talked about last week, we must be humble because selfishness builds a wall Humility builds a door. Now, in principle, that sounds fairly simple. But it's a lot more difficult at 3 a.m. and your roommate is snoring. It's a lot more difficult when someone disagrees with you about how to respond to COVID. It's a lot more difficult when someone changes the program that you love in the church. So how do we become people of humility? How do you become a humble person when everything in you wants to fight for what you want, to look out for your own interests, to think of yourself as being the center Paul says, if you are going to be a community that's one and a community that's humble, you have to keep your eyes on Jesus. Look at what he says, verse five. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. Now, Paul is about to summarize the attitude of Jesus. Jesus lived 33 years, walked the earth, did a lot of things. And how would you imagine that he might summarize all the things that Jesus did? In this setting, in this context, Paul says, here's who Jesus was. Here was his attitude. Jesus, who, verse six, 
existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. He says, this Jesus of history, the Jesus who was born in Bethlehem, who grew up in Nazareth, who walked the earth, who taught people, who did miracles, that Jesus. Did you know that he existed before he was a human? Now, this is a thought that will blow your mind, all right? You can think about this in the shower or wherever you do your best thinking, all right? But Jesus existed before he was a human. When he came to earth, he had memories of things that were going on before he got here. And in that mode of existence, what was true about him? John chapter one says this. In the beginning was the word, referring to Jesus. And the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. Jesus was with God in the beginning. He existed before he came. And he was existing, it says, in the form of God. In the form of God, Paul says in verse six. This little word form means the way something looks or appears in its purest state. He's saying if if you could have seen Jesus before he got to earth, he would have looked exactly like God. His truest mode of existence was God. He was in the form of God. If you could have seen him He would have looked like God. And he says he did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. In other words, he had the option to think about what to do as an equal with God. If he had the option to think about what to do if you were equal with God, The implication is that he was equal with God. So if you could have seen him, he would have looked exactly like God and he was equal with God. So Jesus, he says, existed before he was a human. He was in the form of God and he was equal with God. We should conclude from this, Jesus is God. That's the point he's making. The Jesus of history, the Jesus who walked the earth, the Jesus who was a great moral teacher, the Jesus that activists will want to model themselves after, the Jesus who healed people, the Jesus who was really kind, the Jesus who was really powerful, the Jesus who, had, who did all this stuff on earth, is God. He's not just a great moral teacher, he's not just a prophet. He's God. And he didn't consider equality with God something to be exploited. And the word exploited here, it refers to this, it's a word that is like a word picture of someone who's pulling themselves up on a rope. So that's why many translations would say, He didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. 
He didn't think that he should use his position as God to pull himself up, to exalt himself. That's what it's saying. Or in other words, as God, he didn't think it would be right to do anything from selfish ambition or conceit. Because Jesus was God, because he had all the power, privilege, possessions imaginable, here's what he did instead. Verse 7. Instead. Instead of pulling himself up, instead of exalting himself, instead of, instead of having selfish ambition and conceit, here's what he did. He emptied himself. He emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. Because Jesus was God, he didn't think it was right to be selfish. Now, isn't that the opposite of how you would think? One commentator says this, Human evaluation may assume that God-likeness means having your own way, getting what you want. But Jesus saw God-likeness essentially as giving and spending oneself out. You become the boss, you become the leader, all of a sudden you've got some power, some privilege. What do you do with that? Jesus had ultimate power and privilege. All possessions, everything belonged to him. He's God. And what does he do? He empties himself. Now, many people ask the question what did he empty himself of? His divinity? Did he stop being God? Did he empty himself of his power, his privilege? This is the wrong question to be asking. He didn't empty himself of something. He emptied himself. It's a picture of he's this full cup and he is pouring himself out for other people. Jesus didn't stop being God. What would that even mean? It's not like Superman 2. 1980, you seen this movie? When I was a kid, this was one of my favorite movies, man. Superman 2, basic premise, Clark Kent falls in love with Lois Lane, but he realizes that being Superman is actually making his life difficult. He's not gonna be able to be with Lois, and so he gives up being Superman. And it's only then that coincidentally, meanwhile, while he's giving up all of his powers, it turns out there are these evil aliens who are gonna take over the world and he actually needs his powers to be Superman and then it's, that's the plot. That's not what happens with Jesus. He's not like, well, I really wanna be with these humans and so I guess I better give up all of my powers and my divinity. It's not what he does. It's not the plot of Superman 2. Instead, Jesus emptied himself not by taking off his divinity. Jesus emptied himself by putting on humanity. Jesus emptied himself not by putting off his divinity, but by putting on humanity. 
It says, instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant. Notice the word form in verse 7 and the word form in verse 6. He existed in the form of God, and he took on the form of a servant. He took on the likeness of humanity. He became one of us. And this was not a promotion. There has never been a greater demotion than this. We don't do well with demotions, do we? If you go into work tomorrow and you find out that you're gonna be making less, you're gonna be responsible for less, they're moving you down in the company. The partners are doing something to get you out. What are you going to do? You're going to have a great attitude? No. We don't do well with demotion. Jesus voluntarily took the greatest demotion possible. One pastor that I listened to in college told a story about um, he went on this vacation one time with his family and it was like a nice vacation. And so his kids were middle schoolers and they were like laying by the pool and it was one of those all-inclusive deals where people are bringing drinks by and they're like getting as many sodas as they want and it's like the dream vacation. And they laid at the pool for a week and got to do a bunch of go-karts and putt-putt and I mean, you would think that, you know, they were just living it up for this week and it was the greatest week of their lives and then they come home and come back to their house in the suburbs and all of a sudden, they just start complaining about everything at their house. We never get to do anything fun around here. On vacation, it's so great. I mean, it's so awesome. You get to do all this stuff. But yeah, back at our house, I mean, mom and dad, y'all are just... And he just said that, you know, when you become accustomed to comfort, even for the shortest amount of time, it's really hard to give that up. We have no idea, none whatsoever, what Jesus left behind when he agreed to come to earth. He had known splendor and beauty, worship and adoration, the very presence of God since eternity past, and Jesus, having resided in heaven since eternity past, left it. He volunteered to become an embryo half the size of a grain of sand inside a young girl's womb. Jesus emptied himself by taking on humanity. And when he had come as a man, what kind of life did he live? Was he hanging in the palace? Hanging in the penthouse, hanging in the suburbs. Nope. Instead, he goes to a poor working class family. They weren't zoned for a nice school district. In his humanity, he took the form of a servant, someone who does the will of another, someone without power and without privilege. 
verse 7, when he had come as a man, verse 8, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. He humbled himself by being obedient. Obedient to who? Obedient to his Father in heaven. In the Gospel of John, he says, I do nothing except what my Father tells me. He's obedient to the point of death. He continues to serve and serve and serve until his life is required of him. He continues to give and give and give until he gives his life. And he didn't just die. He even died on a cross, Paul says. And we just cannot fathom the horror of the cross in our culture. The cross for us is something we put right there. The cross for us is a symbol. It's not a reality, though. You've never been walking into a city and just seen people hanging on a cross. Crucifixion was the most severe, humiliating form of execution in the Roman world. It was illegal to crucify a Roman citizen. This is something that was only used for slaves and the worst kind of rebels, anarchists. And Jesus went to a cross Why? Why was his obedience to his father something that would lead him to a cross? Because Jesus died to satisfy God's wrath against sinners and to make it possible for you and me to be reconciled to God. Mark 10, 45, Jesus says this. He was self-conscious of this fact. He says, for even the son of man, talking about himself, for even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Why was Jesus obedient to the point of death? Because the only way for sinners like me and you, sinners like the Philippians, sinners like the Romans, sinners like the Jews, all people of all time, the only way for sinners to be reconciled with a just and holy God was for him to die. Isaiah 53, verses five and six says, 700 years before Jesus came, it prophetically speaks, but he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We have all turned to our own way, and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. All of us have tried to be wise in our own eyes. All of us have lived with selfish ambition and conceit. We've put ourselves above God, above our neighbor. 
and the world is worse for it. And we deserve to pay for that. God in his justice demands payment, but God in his grace makes the payment for us by sending his son, Jesus. And so, Peter can say in 1 Peter 3, for Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. Selfishness is a wall in relationships. And we had built a big one between us and God. Humility is a door. And so Jesus, not wanting any to be blocked off from God, not wanting any to remain separated by the wall, becomes a door. He humbles himself and becomes the door for all humanity of all time. He goes to a cross and he dies. Jesus was humble so that he could be the door for us to get to God. And now we must respond to his humility with humility. We must respond to his humility by humbling ourselves, by not looking at God and saying, I know better than you. Your laws, archaic, outdated, make the world worse. But if, but if I was in charge of society, if, if we could shape things the way that they should be, then really we'll make the world a better place. Instead of living that way, and instead of saying, I don't need, I mean, Jesus, I need Jesus to die for me on the cross so I can be forgiven from this holy, just God, Or instead of saying, yeah, well, Jesus died for me, so now I can do whatever I want. Yeah, I'm really glad that he died because now I can live however I want. I can enjoy sin all the time for free on his dime. All of those responses are selfish ambition and conceit. The gospel must humble us so that we come to Jesus and we say, Jesus, you're the door. You're the door that I need to be able to walk into God. You're the door I need to be brought back into the relationship I was really designed for. Jesus, you're the one I need to forgive me. You're the one I need so that I can have hope that goes beyond the grave. You're the one I need. The way that we humble ourselves is by repenting of our sin and trusting in Jesus. So that's the invitation today, is to repent and believe. But this is not the end of the story. For this reason, 
Verse nine says, because Jesus humbled himself, here's what God did. God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. You wanna know how God responds to humility? He exalts the humble. There's actually a lot of psychology today articles about how uh, we need to have self-love. We don't need to hate ourselves. And sometimes humility is this idea where we just constantly put others ahead of ourselves to the point that it costs us so much that we're not able to actually um, meet our own needs. And that is the fear, I think, that people experience in humility. If I don't look out for myself, then who's going to? If I put other people ahead of myself, then what's gonna happen to me? The key to humility is trusting a God who honors the humble. God exalts the humble. Jesus is our example of humility and Jesus is our future if we will humble ourselves. Jesus was highly exalted and given the name above every name. What name is it referring to? He tells us in verse 11, and let's keep reading verse 10. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, referring to all people who have ever lived and ever will live. Verse 11, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is, here's the name, Lord, to the glory of God the Father. The name that it's referring to is a title. It's a position. It's a place of honor. And Paul is saying that because Jesus humbled himself by going to the cross, God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above all names. And that name is Lord. Jesus was absolutely obedient and now he must be absolutely obeyed. And all of this is to the glory of God the Father. So even God the Father is selfless and generous. Even God the Father is humble. God the Father is glorified by exalting the Son, by saying, come to him. He's the Lord of all. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's how God gets glory. And so, Paul is saying, to live as a citizen of heaven, be like Jesus. Have the attitude of Jesus, the attitude that says, I'm going to be obedient to my Father, even though it's going to cost me now, because I trust that someday the humble will be exalted. Now, think about the context that Paul is saying this in. This is the last thought. This is what I want to leave you with. For a long time, I've known that the cross was illegal for Roman citizens, that Roman citizens would not be executed on a cross. But I was reflecting on this book and our, this theme, Citizens of Heaven, and 
And I thought about how ridiculous it is that Paul gives this instruction to the Philippians. See, he's talking to people who are predominantly Roman citizens. Roman citizens would never go to a cross. But citizens of heaven must go to the cross. And so he is challenging this community to forsake their power and their privileges and their rights as Roman citizens for something greater. And I think that that is a word that our church needs to hear too. Are you so humbled by what Jesus accomplished in his life, his death, and his resurrection? Are you so humbled by his humility that you would be willing to deny yourself and to take up your cross? That's the kind of community that God wants to build. To close today, I just want to give you a couple minutes where you are to pray. And so I'm going to ask you to close your eyes and I want you to do something if you're comfortable doing it. I want you to hold your hands out like this, facing down. And this is just a posture of you letting go of some things. Is there anything that you've been grasping onto for your own advantage? Is there something that you want to control? Is there something, something that you need to humbly surrender to Jesus who is Lord. Would you just talk to your heavenly father about that? Father, we want to drop, we want to let go of every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Now would you flip your palms up? This is a posture of receiving. Will you receive the gift that God has given you? The gift is his son. His son who was humbled for you. so that you could be forgiven, so that you could be reconciled to God. And would, would you live your life in this posture? Would you say, Father, help me live like this. Help me live not controlling, but help me live in humility, trusting that 
that you will exalt the humble. I'm going to pray for us, and then I'm going to ask you to stand. Father, this is an easy thing to do in a church service, and it's a hard thing to live. So God, would you help us by the power of your spirit? It's in Jesus' name that I ask. Amen. Would you stand? We're going to lift our eyes now to Jesus. Jesus.